Hello and uh, welcome to another Frontline Gastroenterology podcast. Uh, my name is John Siegel and I'm a trainee editor at Frontline Gastroenterology. Today it's my great honour and privilege to be joined by Professor Alex Ford and Dr Chris Black to discuss their recent paper in Frontline Gastroenterology called Best Management in Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're recording this in lockdown, so we apologise if there's any problems with the sound quality, but we've tried our best. Uh, importantly, this is going to be a really extensive podcast, which covers so much about irritable bowel syndrome, from uh, specific management issues, including clinic setup, to pharmacology, psychotherapy, diets and tips and, and tricks for the healthcare professionals. So please do listen right to the end because there's some great tips and tricks that, that you'll hear from this. So Professor Ford is a gastroenterologist in Leeds with an interest in evidence-based management of functional gastrointestinal disorders, including irritable bowel syndrome. And Chris Black is a gastroenterology registrar in Leeds and is currently undertaking his PhD, focusing on the classification and treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. Thank you so much for joining us both. So thanks for asking us, John. So I'm going to direct the first question to Chris, if that's all right. Uh, so Chris was the lead author of this paper. And uh, Chris, I was, I was reading the paper and what was really interesting to me is you discuss about the lack of head-to-head -head trials in irritable bowel syndrome. And I, I had two questions for that. So I wondered, one, could you speculate as to why that might be? And then you go on to mention about network meta-analyses and how they may circumnavigate this issue. And just to familiarise our readers and listeners with what a network meta-analysis is would be quite useful, I think. I wondered if you could do that for us. Uh, yeah, sure, John. So, um, I mean, I think undoubtedly uh, the best way of understanding the, the relative efficacy of different treatments in IBS or indeed anything else would be to have head-to-head -head trials of one treatment against another. Um, but the problem with doing that is that such trials will be very expensive because you'd need uh, large numbers of patients in order to, to answer that question. Um, and so uh, certainly in IBS, most of the treatments that we have, with the exception of some of the older treatments, have been compared with placebo. So that's really helpful in terms of proving in an experimental trial situation that the drug is effective, more effective than a placebo. But it doesn't help patients and doctors when they're looking at a range of treatments and trying to work out uh, what might be the best or the most appropriate one in, in any individual situation. So in the absence of having or being able to conduct head-to-head -head trials, a network meta-analysis uh, helps us to work out uh, or to sort of estimate the, the likely relative efficacy of, uh, of drugs. Uh, and I think probably most people will be familiar with uh, a conventional pairwise meta-analysis. So that's where you can pull the data about a specific treatment from lots of different trials and come up with an overall assessment of its efficacy using all the available data. But you can't just do different pairwise meta-analyses of different treatments and then look at the, uh, the outcome side by side and infer uh, what might be the best. That's not the best way of doing it. So a network meta-analysis enables us to uh, take uh, all of the available data uh, and combine it together so that we can work out uh, how the treatments stack up. In simple terms, the way that that works is that we already know uh, some measured effects. So in the existing trials, we know how the drug has performed against its comparator, be that a placebo, for example. But many trials will share, therefore, a common comparator. So a placebo is a, is a good example of that. Um, and so because we know the magnitude of the effect between, say, treatment A and the placebo and treatment B in a placebo, um, we're assuming that that com common comparator is largely the same. So we can then infer what the likely difference between, say, treatment A and B is, even though they haven't been directly compared. That's a brilliant summary, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, I'll direct the next question to Alex, if that's all right. So what I really liked about your paper was you really focused on the importance of good communication. And I think in any consultation, that's key. But I think especially uh, when treating IBS patients, this is really important. And I just wonder, do you think we have enough time in a standard NHS time slot to be able to do this? Or do you advocate the need for more time with IBS patients? So that's a very good question, John. Um, thanks for asking us to talk about the paper today. I think 
Unfortunately, we don't have much evidence. So we're very interested in evidence-based management. But in terms of how best to approach people with IBS in the clinic and how long to spend with them, there isn't any um, randomized controlled trial evidence, or not very much anyway, to enable us to <clears throat> inform our best practice. Um, but I think it's common sense that we want to explain things in sufficient detail for the person with the condition in our clinic to understand what it is and to understand its natural history and to understand what the possible causes are and what can exacerbate symptoms and also to be able to explain different treatments and their potential benefits and also their harms. And obviously that takes time. We were asked when we wrote the article to comment on how long we should spend talking to patients. And as I say, we couldn't really go to the literature and give a particular answer to that. But in our own IBS clinic that we have in Leeds, we fought very hard to get longer appointment slots to take into account for all of the things I've just mentioned. So when we're seeing a new patient with irritable bowel syndrome, we ask them to complete a questionnaire, uh, which includes their symptoms and their mood and extra intestinal symptoms. And they normally do that before they see us. And then we go through the questionnaire with them. And that gives us a pretty good idea of what their most troublesome symptoms are and also how their symptoms might be impacting on their other uh, systems and their psychology or their mood. And we then spend time talking to the patient, usually about 20 to 25 minutes. Um, we talk for less time to follow up patients. Normally, we give a follow up slot 15 minutes. So that compares to in our normal general um, gastroenterology clinics, we'd, give, we'd see a new patient in 20 minutes and a follow up would be seen in a 10 minute slot. So I think uh, you do need extra time to be able to communicate in sufficient detail probably for all patients but irritable bowel syndrome in particular because there's some nuanced conversations that you have to be able to have with the patient some of which we'll probably talk about later and if they're done clumsily and in a rush then that can have a substantial impact on the clinical course of IBS I believe. One thing that I found really interesting when reading your paper is you, you quoted that many believe that IBS is a psychological disorder, which shocked me a little bit. And I just wondered in, in your experience, what do we need to do to try and move away from this? I wondered if, Chris, maybe you can take this one. Uh, yeah, thanks, John. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are psychological elements to IBS, of course. Um, you know, we know that uh, there's a bi-directional interaction between the gut and the brain and that people that have uh, anxiety or abnormal mood at baseline might be more likely to go on to develop IBS. But the same is also true that those with IBS symptoms at baseline can go on to develop mood disorders. So um, psychological elements are really important, but I think one of the problems is when people characterize IBS as being solely uh, a psychological disorder or a problem with stress. Um, I think that's very unhelpful. Um, and one of the things that might make it a little bit easier for people to sort of change the way they think about it is the intention to reclassify IBS and other functional uh, gut disorders as disorders of gut-brain interaction, because it puts the emphasis on the fact that there are some elements that are gut-related and in, you know, intestinal-related and some elements that are um, related to central processing and the brain and psychology, and that it's the interaction of those two things that's important in terms of creating symptoms. I think sometimes patients worry that they've been labelled as having a psychological or a stress-related thing. And, you know, of course, they can interpret that as meaning that people don't think that their symptoms are real, whereas, of course, they do have entirely genuine and real uh, and often very troublesome physical symptoms. So uh, that plays uh, also into Alex's point about the need to sensitively discuss and communicate exactly what we mean when we're talking about these, uh, these things. Um, Obviously, the extent that something is psychological or physical can vary for different patients. So it's not the same for everybody. Um, but I think it's just trying to uh, get across the point that it's not wholly a somatic problem, nor is it wholly a psychological problem. There's usually a blend of the, of the two things going on. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. And, and it goes into what's called dualism, which is to do with how you classify um, diseases or conditions, whether they're mind-based or body-based, so sorts of psyche or soma. And IBS is a 
is a condition that doesn't uh, doesn't fit into either. I think education is also important. So um, it's about educating colleagues, uh, both people who work in hospital and uh, people who work in primary care, about IBS and explaining that it is an important disorder and it has a substantial impact on people's quality of life and social functioning. Um, so I remember talking to a, a group of GP trainees probably about two or three years ago uh, and spending about an hour teaching them about IBS and explaining why I thought IBS was an important condition. And at the end of um, the teaching session, one of the senior GPs summarised the, 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 the afternoon for me um, and explained to the trainees that most people with IBS just needed to be told to get on with it and pull themselves together. Um, so <clears throat> that obviously wasn't particularly helpful. Um, and I think those sorts of attitudes are why people with IBS feel stigmatised. And it's up to us as specialists who've got an interest in this area to try and change perceptions of IBS. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for a really comprehensive answer. Um, and following on from that, um, you mentioned the importance of taking into account the patient's emotions. And I just wondered as clinicians, do you feel that you have all the tools necessary to be able to deal with that? Or should we be utilising the help of other healthcare professionals, such as psychologists, what your thoughts about that are? Yeah, I, th I think um, there is good evidence that other approaches than drugs work in irritable bowel syndrome. And we'll probably talk a bit about diet later on. Um, but certainly there's evidence that psychological therapies are of benefit. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy and gut directed hypnotherapy and psychotherapy and things like that. The problem with that is that we don't really know when the best time to use these sorts of interventions is. And because they can be difficult to access, most guidelines that we have suggest that they should be used in patients who are what we would call refractory to medical treatment. So in other words, in patients who failed everything else, that's when we should consider psychological therapies. And that's convenient and means that they're not overwhelmed with referrals, but equally it could be that if people with IBS with particular psychological components or traits or problems were being offered psychological therapies earlier on in their disease course, then that might have the potential to change the natural history. And it may be that we can identify individual factors that will respond whether people are more likely to respond to a psychological therapy than someone who isn't. And that way we could perhaps select out people who are more likely to benefit and allow them ease of access to a psychological therapy rather than just saying it, we only give these treatments to people who have failed everything else. One of the problems we have, of course, is that psychologists are not um, to a penny. So we don't have ease of access to psychologists. There's a lack of people who've been trained in how to deliver gut-directed hypnotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. So as clinicians, when we're seeing patients in our IBS clinic, we have some ability to refer people on for psychological therapy, but it can be difficult. And because when we refer patients to um, community mental health teams, because that's part of a separate um, organisation, a, a separate trust, uh, communication between our hospital and the mental health trust is not always um, perfect. So we sometimes don't find out what's happened to those patients when they've been to see someone for CBT, which can be quite frustrating for obviously for the patient and for us. So if you were setting up an IBS service from the bottom up, obviously you would ensure that at the beginning, when you set up your clinic, there was a dietitian in the clinic, there was a psychologist in the clinic, and that patients were offered uh, the opportunity to go and speak with a psychologist at the time they were diagnosed and to speak with a dietitian, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously, there'll be some people with IBS who don't want to talk to a psychologist or don't want to talk to a dietitian, but particularly perhaps a psychologist. And again, that's kind of to do with stigma and whether or not the patient believes that um, their psychology has any role to play in the disorder or whether they feel that we are making judgments that this is all in their mind, this is imagined, uh, this is factitious, and therefore we're asking a psychologist to assess them. Um, so it's a, it's a very difficult area, but obviously in most 
conditions we're going towards multidisciplinary type approaches and that you know the same in inflammatory bowel disease so you know in a in an ideal world ibs patients will be being managed by a multidisciplinary team not just by gastroenterologists yeah great uh, and for kind of following up from that then um you mentioned a bit about following up patients and i've had some practices where you know they discharge ibs in inverted commas patients quite quickly uh, and I was really pleased to see that you offer patients a minimum of, of two kind of follow-ups. I, I just wondered what sort of points do you feel safe to discharge a patient back to the GP? Do you have any criteria? What are your kind of tips for, for that? It is difficult. Um, and obviously, you know, these decisions are, are based on any individual patient's circumstances. I think, again, one of the things that can be really helpful, uh, and it, it comes back to the sort of initial consultation and the way that you can communicate things to patients, because it's about making sure that they have a good understanding about what IBS is, making sure that they have a good understanding about the natural history of it in terms of the fact that, you know, for two thirds of patients, symptoms are chronic to some uh, extent. Uh, and also to to outline what you're actually trying to achieve through treatment, because many patients are coming thinking you know well I've tried this and I've tried this other treatment and I still have my symptoms and it's about explaining that we may uh, not be able to get rid of symptoms completely and that we're trying to um, you know, use strategies to control and uh, relieve symptoms um, and also to try and uh, empower patients to feel better able to cope and manage their symptoms themselves um, and so exhaustive follow-up, I think, is unhelpful, um, even in patients where, you know, we've not been able to um, completely uh, resolve their symptoms to their satisfaction. Um, but I think equally, it's important not to just discharge people straight away because uh, you need to assess their response. Usually there are other options that they won't have tried. Um, and again, if you set that sort of roadmap out at the beginning, it means that people uh, understand that if if the thing that you're going to try first doesn't work, there's something else that might be tried. Uh, and to be positive about it and to put it in a context so that people understand um, what you're doing. I think it's difficult to know exactly when um, people should be discharged. Some people, it's, it's clear that they just wanted a good explanation um, and they get on quite well with fairly sim simple um, treatment strategies. And for other people, uh, it can be more difficult. Um, and, you know, to reiterate something that Alex was saying earlier, sometimes that's because there might be psychological problems. And again, they often haven't been addressed early on. So I think some of dealing with the treatment um, paradigm and being able to discharge people comes from being able to implement the right treatment at an earlier stage. I, I, Alex probably has some other thoughts, I imagine, about this. I was actually going to say that um, one of the things that we do, John, in our clinic is we are very open and candid with patients right from the start. So in the letter that they get for our clinic, when they are given a new patient appointment, it says in the letter that this is the IBS clinic. We will see you. We will spend time making a diagnosis and we will probably follow you up for another two or three visits. That's what it says right in the opening letter so that there's a sort of perceptions um, are managed. Um, and that they understand that they are not going to be, unless we find out they've got inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease or something like that, they understand that um, it's likely that this is a first visit to go through things and for some limited diagnostic tests for which, you know, you can refer to our previous paper, Rational Investigations in IBS, which was published in um, Frontline Gastroenterology recently. And then once the diagnosis is confirmed, the next set of appointments are usually to do with trying to tailor treatment to the patient's symptoms and we explain right at the beginning usually that there is no cure that symptoms are uh, managed and that drugs don't work for everyone or dietary therapies don't work for everyone and we give all our patients a standardized advice sheet about IBS so we have a hospital produced advice sheet that explains about the pathophysiology uh, the natural history, what we use to treat IBS and why we use them, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we're sort of quite comprehensive and open in the way that we manage our patients in our specialist IBS clinic. That, that sounds great and a really thorough approach. And please do check out that uh, other paper that, that Alex uh, mentioned about the uh, rational investigations that was published in Frontline. Another really good paper produced by, by the group. Um, so, so you touched there, Alex, I believe, on, on dietary advice in your last answer. 
And I just wanted to get a bit, a bit more uh, recommendations from this because it, it always comes up in clinics. What diet do I have? Is this caused by diet, et cetera, et cetera. And I just wondered in your practice, is there any specific diets that you tend to advise? And obviously the one that keeps coming up in, in my clinics are, are, are FODMAP diets. And I just wondered what your collective thoughts are on, on these things. So we tend to give everyone the, the British Dietetic Association dietary advice sheet for people with irritable bowel syndrome. And that contains relatively straightforward instructions about how you can make small changes in diet that may potentially benefit symptoms. And it's to do with eating three regular meals of a, of a, of a sort of adequate size, uh, reducing caffeine intake, reducing alcohol intake, reducing uh, fizzy drinks, avoiding particularly fibrous foods that may exacerbate pain and bloating. And that would be what we would probably classify as standard first-line dietary advice. So everyone in our clinic would receive that information. And then obviously there's a group of people, and we discussed this in the article, who may need more targeted treatment. And usually the next stage then, these days, is to go and see a dietitian for some more formal dietary advice and, and what happens in Leeds is that we're quite lucky the dietitians see a lot of our patients and have the capacity to do that and they will go through things in a more nuanced way than we would and make a decision based on what the patient's wishes are um, and their lifestyle etc as to whether or not they think they would benefit from a low FODMAP diet and so we have FODMAP accredited dietitians in Leeds um, so a lot of our patients get access to a low FODMAP diet. Now, you know, we can argue about what the evidence is for a low FODMAP diet, um, but there is evidence, non, you know, there are randomized controlled trials that have been published that show it's superior to habitual diet. And, um, you know, there are other trials that suggest that perhaps it's not much better than standard dietary advice. Um, you know, the tr there's been at least one or two randomized trials that have compared the low FODMAP diet to the nice accredited diet that I've just mentioned um, and that have shown that there was no particular effect in terms of uh, improvement in symptoms any more so than you would expect with, uh, with, the, with just making some perhaps more simple dietary changes. The problem, of course, with the low FODMAP diet is it's quite restrictive. Um, now, the, the idea is that patients are supposed to reintroduce FODMAPs to tolerance um, at around about eight weeks and identify foods that trigger uh, and keep those out of the diet altogether and then allow foods that don't trigger back into the diet, FODMAP containing foods that don't trigger back into the diet. And that's the process that the person's supposed to go through. The, the thing I would point out about most trials of the low FODMAP diet is they've only studied the FODMAP withdrawal period. They haven't actually studied what happens in a controlled environment or a controlled trial once you start to do FODMAP reintroduction and whether FODMAP withdrawal plus reintroduction to tolerance is superior to habitual diet or to uh, the nice accredited diet or something like that. So um, dietary trials are hard to do. The trials that we've got are not perfect, but I think there's enough evidence to uh, use diet as a first line treatment because a lot of patients want to avoid drugs. So that's another thing that we do in our clinic is we ask our patients what their preference is uh, when they answer their questionnaire. They give us their preference about what they would like us to offer them whether it be a drug or explanation and reassurance or a psychological therapy or to see a dietitian um, and lots of patients nowadays want to avoid taking drugs if possible so diet because it's potentially um, safe no particular side effects uh, is one of the things that people are more interested in nowadays and it's a natural sort of approach yeah that's really interesting um, along similar lines, your, your paper mentions about probiotics and, and the use of those. And uh, my understanding is there's so many different probiotics out there, different formulations. And I just wondered, are there any specific ones you recommend to patients at all? So, um, yeah, we've studied this, I think, on three occasions over the years. And um, we started off when we first looked at this, I think there were only 10 or 11 trials of, of probiotics in IBS. And that was probably 10 years ago or so. And now there's, you know, 30, 40, 50 trials of probiotics in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. But the problem is that most of those trials are selecting 
patients who have not been subtyped or um, who have not been well phenotyped. So we don't know which, whether a probiotic works according to a particular bowel habit or stool pattern. Um, and the other thing is that most trials do not use the same probiotics. So there are very few probiotics that have been used in identical groups of patients in identically designed trials. So it makes it really hard to make any particular recommendations as to which species or strain or combination of probiotics should be preferred. And so whenever we've updated our trial-based meta-analysis of probiotics in IBS, we've usually demurred from making any particular uh, claims or recommendations about which probiotic should be used. So I, I tend not to make any specific uh, claims for probiotics when I'm talking to patients and um, I tend to give them a, a list of ones that might be helpful um, usually about four or five different ones the, the other issue with probiotics is some of them are sort of milk-based drinks which um, can exacerbate IBS type symptoms so lactose can sometimes make people with IBS symptoms worse um, so I, I explain that you know this is a drink this is a uh, a fruit flavored drink this is a yogurt type drink this is a sachet this is a capsule and i explained that you know the response to these is variable so it's not going to work for everyone and um sometimes i i say you know sometimes people have to shop around and find one that suits them yeah and just going back to probably a more natural remedy i really like the the fact that you mentioned exercise in your paper um, what, what do you do with this? Do you tell patients actively to go out and, and exercise? Do you, do you put that as part of your treatment? And if so, are there any particular exercises that you recommend to patients? One of the things that this reminds us is that, you know, we're often looking at or dealing with IBS in a very medical construct. We think about whether we need to do tests on patients and um, what treatment we want, be that a dietary treatment or a, a drug treatment. But sometimes it's sensible just to reiterate that simple things that are in under the patient's direct control can be helpful. Um, so certainly in the NICE guidance, they recognise the importance of relaxation and leisure time, etc., and the role of uh, stress. Uh, and exercise is another thing that they, that they talk about. So um, I, I do touch on these things with patients when I see them. Um, I don't uh, generally sort of tell them what kind of exercise to do but I just sort of talk about the fact that you know being sedentary or having a more sedentary lifestyle uh, isn't good in general for, for health uh, and isn't good for gut health and that exercise seems to be an important part of maintaining health in general of course but also specifically um, gut health so I think it doesn't necessarily mean that people need to start uh, running or going to the gym or going swimming or whatever it might be but I think just trying to be more physically active you know walk more etc in the day um, might be beneficial for their for their um, for their gut health and for their general health um, and so I think just you know talking about those things relaxation exercise good sleep etc for some people that will have a, a benefit and, and might be something that they don't prioritise or that they overlook, particularly in modern life, busy as it is. I, I, I don't know what Alex uh, does along those lines. Yeah, I think exactly what you say, really. It's about um, taking the opportunity, as you would if you're a primary care practitioner, um, seeing a patient about something, you take the opportunity to, uh, you know, point out uh, healthy lifestyle advice, you know, alcohol, smoking, etc. Uh, so exercise is part of that. There's not a great deal of evidence for exercise as a treatment for IBS, but there are, there are a couple of randomised trials. Uh, there's a group from there's a, uh, a trial from Magnus Simran's group showing that exercise versus sort of you know continuing doing what you're doing, a graded sort of supervised exercise program was superior in terms of uh, symptom scores, and um, and that seemed to be quite long lasting. They followed those patients out to I think maybe two or even five years. Um, and um and showed that the symptom scores were still lower in the ones who were uh, assigned to the graded exercise program um so I, you know it's not something it's not something that um is going to cause harm again it's a bit like uh you know a natural approach rather than giving someone a drug that might cause side effects i guess the problem for people with ibs particularly those who've got diarrhea predominant ibs is that some of these people are actually housebound because of the fear of losing control of their bowels in public, uh, which is, you know, something that most of us don't don't ever think about. But if you're a patient who 
has severe IBS with diarrhea and you've ever lost control of your bowels in public, then for you, you know, that is a huge taboo, isn't it? And that, that then becomes um, something that drives a lot of worry and anxiety and can make people withdraw from, from society. Um, and so to tell someone like that, you need to get out and do some running, obviously is not going to be uh, particularly helpful. I think it's probably, you would imagine intuitively, although I don't think there's any evidence, but you would imagine that exercise is more likely to help people who are towards a constipated end of the IBS spectrum. Yeah. One thing that from a practical perspective, you, you mentioned the use of antispasmodics, uh, particularly you mentioned hyacine. I just wondered, do you ever use any others at all? Do you recommend any others? Yeah, um, I do. And um, I tend to mention hyacine first off because when we looked at antispasmodics 10 or 12 years ago and published a meta-analysis in the BMJ, hyacin was the drug that seemed to um, have the most evidence. And it was, it was studied in three trials, looking at recruiting around about 500 patients, and it was superior to placebo. Um, so, and, it's, and it's available in the UK. So that's one of the reasons why I use it. And that's one of the reasons why I tend to mention it when I'm asked to write an article about IBS. Um, but there are other antispasmodics available and there are other antispasmodics that are beneficial. So peppermint oil is an antispasmodic because um, it works on calcium channels in smooth muscle, so it can have antispasmodic effects. And again, when we've looked at peppermint oil in meta-analyses, um, it's superior to placebo. It seems to be particularly beneficial for pain. Um, there's been a recent randomized trial of peppermint oil published by Jan Tax Group in Gastroenterology, which um, was a decent sized trial and um, used either a small bowel release or an ileocolonic release formulation of peppermint oil. And it seemed that the small bowel release uh, version was uh, perhaps more effective than the ileocolonic release version. I tend not to use the other antispasmodics that are available in the UK. So um, Alvarine, I think there's only ever been one trial of Alvarine and it didn't show a significant benefit. I think there was a trend towards a benefit. So I only use that from time to time, usually if the patient's not managed with uh, hyacine. Mebeverine, I, I tend not to use at all because the only trial I know of uh, that, that, that has been um, done in IBS didn't show any benefit at all. Um, and then there's a drug that some people have heard of called dicyclovirine, which is uh, quite old fashioned, but I sometimes use that because, again, there's been a trial of that drug that shows that it's more effective than placebo in IBS. So hyacine, peppermint oil, dicyclovirine. Uh, sometimes I would use alvarine. Uh, I very rarely use mebeverine. That's my kind of list of antispasmodics for, for practice. But that's UK based if you're in the us many of these drugs are not available at all and if you're in europe there are other available drugs like otolonium yeah a really good to put the evidence base behind all those so thank you so much for providing that one question i had and it's when you start using things like the tricyclics the ssris as kind of second line treatment options and i always feel that this is quite difficult sometimes to introduce into a discussion with a patient because they're often associated with mood disorders uh, a lot of patients know about these. So I just wondered how you go about kind of explaining this to a patient, how you start introducing these into a patient's treatment plan. That's a really good question. And this gets back to what I was saying earlier about the nuanced discussion that you need um, sometimes in people with irritable bowel syndrome and why a 10 minute um, or a 20 minute slot doesn't necessarily uh, allow that. So yes, you need, this is a, a topic that has to be discussed in detail in order for patients to buy into it in inverted commas so if you just say here's this drug take away this prescription it'll help your symptoms um, and you give the patient the prescription for amitriptyline and that's the end of the conversation what they'll do is get the amitriptyline take it home read the summary of product characteristics say hey hang on a minute this is an antidepressant why is dr ford giving me this i'm not depressed this is this is ridiculous you know and they're unlikely to um, take the drug. They're probably going to be quite upset that you prescribed an antidepressant in what they think is an antidepressant. And um, so this is why this is a, a hugely important issue. So I tend not to use SSRIs very often because I don't think that they're particularly useful. 
um, in IBS, I tend to use tricyclic antidepressants much more. Um, and the issues around antidepressants are that just like any drug, they have more than one effect. So aspirin is a painkilling drug, but also aspirin has an effect on platelets. So people who've had a heart attack take aspirin because of its antiplatelet effects. So I explain this to patients that drugs have other effects. So a drug that might be an antidepressant can also have other effects on the body. I explain that tricyclics in particular have pain modifying properties. So they're acting on nerve endings and are modulating the perception of pain. I explain that the dose of a tricyclic, and this is why SSRIs, it's a bit more difficult to have this conversation, but the dose of a tricyclic that we're using, like camitriptyline in IBS, is a fraction of the dose that's used to treat depression. So the dose to treat depression is 150 to 200 milligrams, whereas for IBS, most patients will be on a dose of somewhere between 10 and 30 milligrams. They may get up to 50 milligrams, but most will be on somewhere between 10 and 30. So we're using anywhere between um, a fifth and a tenth of the conventional antidepressant dose. And at that kind of a dose, the drug isn't having any effects on mood or it's unlikely it's having much effect on mood. So it's not being used to treat depression. Uh, it's being used because it's a pain modulating medication. Um, SSRIs, it's more difficult to have that conversation because the dose is almost identical. In fact, the dose is identical for most of them. 20 milligrams of fluoxetine is a dose for depression and it's a dose that's been tested in um, IBS as well. I don't believe that the evidence is as good for SSRIs. So I know that uh, when we've done meta-analyses, although there is a benefit of SSRIs, there's heterogeneity between the trials, there's negative trials, there's positive trials. The data for tricyclics are much stronger. Uh, all the trials show a benefit. Uh, it's not statistically significant in all of the trials that have been conducted, and that's partly probably because most of the trials are underpowered. It's intuitive that tricyclics would be superior to SSRIs for IBS because um, tricyclics work on multiple different receptors. So they work on um, noradrenaline as well as serotonin and they're an anti-muscarinic as well. Uh, and the pain modifying property is felt to uh, come from the effects on noradrenaline. SSRIs, as their name would suggest, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors only work on serotonin. So their pain modifying ability is, uh, is much less. And so that's why I prefer TCAs. Um, so the conversation is nuanced. I have to uh, set the scene, talk about what, you know, why these drugs are being used, that they're not being used to treat depression, that the dose is lower and that they have pain modifying properties. The other thing that both tricyclics and SSRIs have is effects on the GI motility as well. And that's something else I explained to the patient. So tricyclics slow down uh, transit time. So they, you, one would imagine that they will be more beneficial in patients with IBS, with diarrhea, uh, although that's unproven. Um, and um, SSRIs have, uh, have the opposite effect. So you would imagine if they were going to be effective, that they will be more effective in people with IBS-C. So we're, we're doing a big randomized trial of amitriptyline in uh, IBS in primary care called Atlantis, which is um, funded by the NIHR. And we're going to randomize 520 people to either amitriptyline or placebo after they've failed first line treatments in primary care. And when, when we've completed that trial, we'll have a much better understanding of the effects of uh, tricyclics on mood because we're measuring mood before and after the drug. We'll have a better understanding of whether they're beneficial earlier in the disease course, i.e. in patients in primary care rather than in secondary care. And we'll also have a better idea of whether they work uh, in a particular stool subtype because we're stratifying patients into the randomization arms based on their stool pattern at baseline. Oh, that would be a great study that we we'll look forward to seeing the results from. Um, further reading into your paper, you mentioned uh, methods and drugs used to help with diarrhea. And I think, you know, most of us are familiar with things like the paramide and, and drugs like that. But you mentioned some of these new drugs. And I just wondered if you could uh, briefly touch on them for our readers and, uh, and where their place is. Well, there are drugs such as Alocitron and Remocitron, um, which work on the, the 5-HT3 receptors in the enteric nervous system in the gut. 
and they antagonize those receptors. Um, so 5-HT3 uh, serotonin receptors are involved in GI transit. Um, and so when these drugs antagonize them, what they do is they basically slow down transit time. So they reduce the speed that the intestinal contents move through, provide more time for water um, reabsorption in the colon, etc., which is why they're used as treatments for diarrhea. Um, Losatron's actually been around for quite a while. So I think it was first approved in the States um, in around about the year 2000. Um, and it is only available in the, in the United States, no, nowhere else. Um, it was initially withdrawn because there were some concerns about safety in terms of risk of ischemic colitis and severe constipation. But it has subsequently and is currently uh, available there um, for the treatment of severe IBSD, but only in, uh, in women. Um, Remosatron, uh, no such safety concerns with that drug, but again, limited availability. So uh, only available in um, Japan and uh, some other Southeast Asian um, countries, uh, but does uh, again appear to be effective. So meta-analyses of both Losatron and Remosatron uh, have shown that it, that it, it seems to work well for, um, for treating IBSD. And when we did a network meta-analysis and pulled uh, all of that data together and looked at uh, those drugs alongside other um, uh, drugs for treating diarrhea, uh, it, it was convincingly the best and it seemed to be a class effect in the sense that Losatron and Remosatron uh, perform very well for stool consistency endpoints um, and pay, uh, abdominal pain endpoints and also a composite endpoint of the two, which is the one that the um, FDA, the Federal um, Drug Administration, recommends as the endpoint for treatment trials. Um, so, but unfortunately, that doesn't help us here in the UK or in Europe because we can't prescribe those drugs. Um, Ondansetron is also a 5-HT3 uh, receptor antagonist, which we're, of course, all familiar with because of its use as an antiemetic, um, widely used, been around for a long time, and has a, a good safety profile. Um, and there's some evidence from existing uh, studies that uh, Ondansetron may be an effective treatment for uh, IBS with diarrhea. Um, and the, the Triton study, um, which has been... Uh, paused at the moment as with so many things because of the pandemic is looking specifically at the use of ondansetron in a placebo controlled trial for the treatment of IBSD. so hopefully that might give us a, a effective option that we, that we can use uh, here and indeed in other places um alexadiline is a more recent drug um so uh alexadiline is uh, works on opioid receptors um, and it has a mixed mechanism of action. So it works on um, mu and kappa opioid receptors in the gut as an agonist. Um, so the mu uh, receptor is similar to what loperamide targets. So by antagonizing that receptor, you slow down transit. Um, and then the kappa opioid receptor more involved in sort of pain uh, responses. Um, and it antagonizes, uh, I think, delta opioid receptors centrally. So the idea is that it has local effects on the gut that may be beneficial, um, but mitigates some of the centrally mediated uh, side effects. Um, it, that drug has been recently withdrawn, uh, certainly in the UK, and I think in, in other places. It still is available in, in some countries, but not as widely as it was before. And um, so uh, but but the idea is that it that it helps to to reduce uh, transit time and and help with um, pain. And the main problems that were encountered was the risk of pancreatitis, um, particularly in people who'd had uh, cholecystectomies. Um, so that that was one of the concerns around its uh, use when it was first licensed. Really interesting. Thanks, Chris. For that. Great summary. Um, you also mentioned in your papers the amount of IBS patients that are under primary care kind of follow-up and with, with so many that there are I just wondered as secondary care physicians do you have any advice or tips that you can offer our primary care colleagues for looking after patients with IBS? Yeah it's difficult in primary care for the the reasons that we've talked about already in terms of time pressure and the, the numbers of patients that you're seeing short consultation times so it is difficult I think to have time to explore um, patient symptoms and to discuss IBS which as we've covered several times already during this podcast, is actually really important. Um, but I think, you know, it's just trying to get some of those simple messages across so that patients understand what's, uh, what you think is going on. So if you think it's IBS, you know, say that you think it's IBS um, and explain a little bit around what that, that means um, and deploy the, the, the simple tests appropriately. So, you know, check 
uh, the routine bloods make sure you check people's celiac serology so you're not missing celiac disease um, and if you're going to do a calprotectin do that um, you know in an appropriate context so that's fine in, in patients that are having significant diarrhea to to see whether you think there might actually be an inflammatory component but, but don't use this in everybody don't don't uh, test people with constipation for example um, if you're you know if you're talking about dietary advice use the use the bda diet sheet it's it's easily available and downloadable online and gives really good simple overview about dietetic advice so patients might um, appreciate that um, and sort of just emphasize what you know what the sort of treatment strategy is so that it's a symptom targeted treatment strategy when you're um, deploying your sort of simple treatments like antidiarrheals or, or or laxatives and that those things might not completely get rid of symptoms and then if you you know if you are referring on to uh, colleagues in secondary care which is often necessary particularly patients that have uh, tried these um, first line uh, treatments and lifestyle treatments and haven't got any better or of course where there's a concern that that, that, that might that IBS might not be the diagnosis um, and further testing might be needed just be clear sort of with the patient when you're referring them what what that's for or that it's you know that it might not be because you don't think that is the diagnosis but because you want uh, a bit of specialist input about treatment um, and that obviously we might not do much different we might we might not send the patient for a colonoscopy so again it's important to emphasize that you know those tests are not uh, necessarily the mainstay of managing IBS and it doesn't mean that the diagnosis is has been missed or is uncertain or is unclear it's it's the nature of, of IBS that we wouldn't we would expect tests to be normal and we don't need to exhaustively investigate patients in order to make a diagnosis and indeed there's a, there's there's evidence that doing more and more and more investigation rather than being reassuring um, can can have negative consequences for the patients in terms of uh, making them increasingly concerned that we haven't found the cause of their of their symptoms and um, but i think you know it is difficult and certainly for, for me as a, as a secondary care uh, doctor i haven't really spent any time in primary care so i think we have to just be you know i think alex obviously talked earlier about going and uh, providing some education so i think a bit of cross talk between primary care and secondary care to understand the different perspectives and needs and maybe gaps in understanding on both sides is also important i think you highlighted the uh, importance of potentially reading your other article the rational investigations the need for colonoscopies and stuff so uh, again i'd really recommend reading that in, in conjunction with this paper as well i'm going to ask probably a potentially controversial question next because a lot of ibs is seen in in all sorts of secondary care services and i just wondered you've got such a great individualized setup at, at your institute in leeds and do you think that you know, we need to start sub-specialising more. And should IBS actually be looked after by someone who, who has a specialist interest in IBS? Or do you think any gastroenterologist can look after a patient? I wonder what Alex's thoughts were about this. I mean, we all do general gastroenterology. Most of us still see unselected patients and do clinics um, where we see patients with celiac disease, Barrett's esophagus, inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, etc., etc. But everyone has their own areas of expertise and interest. And I guess, you know, we're moving to a world where uh, everything is becoming increasingly specialist. And the older I get, the more and more I know about less and less. And people want to be looked after by doctors who are interested in the condition that they've got. But they don't want to be seen on a conveyor belt that works out whether they've got inflammatory bowel disease or not and then boots them straight back out to their gp saying i don't know what's wrong with you but you haven't got inflammatory bowel disease um so i guess you know we're, we're moving to a, a world where we're probably going to have uh, increasing numbers of uh people being seen in specialist clinics and that was one of the reasons why um Paula craig one of our colleagues and and i set up the specialist ibs service um, now that doesn't mean that everyone with IBS needs to be seen in the specialist clinic. The specialist clinic is really for people who, where there's diagnostic doubt or where their symptoms have been difficult to manage in primary care. Now, obviously there'll be some people with IBS who never see a doctor ever. They've never seen their GP even. There'll be some people who've seen their GP, but have been managed appropriately with 
you know, explanation, lifestyle advice, antispasmodic. And then there'll be some people who've seen a secondary care gastroenterologist, had some further investigations done, being told, you know, this isn't cancer, it isn't inflammatory bowel disease, it's likely it's IBS. And that is enough. And they are reassured with that explanation and can be discharged. And then there'll be another group where their symptoms are more difficult to control or they still think that something might have been missed. And those are the sorts of patients that will probably benefit from a more specialist approach. Just like, you know, in inflammatory bowel disease now, some people advocate that patients with proctitis don't need to necessarily be seen in a specialist IBD clinic. Hmm. Thank you. This is really, really useful. Um, just as we start to conclude this podcast, I just wondered uh, if you'll be kind enough for our listeners to summarise in three to four kind of take home messages of what you want to take away from your paper. Uh, yeah, uh, sure, John. So um, obviously this is a paper discussing management. So I'd say uh, the, the sort of four things really uh, are firstly, the importance of good communication. So that's trying to take uh, a bit of time to uh, understand the patient's expectations, elicit any concerns that they have so you can address those and understand where they're coming from. And to talk a bit about IBS, what it is, what the history of it is and what to expect from treatment and to outline those uh, those options. Um, I think secondly, uh, don't forget about the simple lifestyle advice. So talking about uh, exercise, physical activity, uh, simple dietary advice, um, and then referring on uh, for a dietetic opinion where that might be helpful uh, or for more specialist dietary input, such as a, a low FODMAP diet. Um, in terms of first line treatment, we start with simple interventions targeted at symptoms. So antidiarrheals, for example, or laxatives uh, or uh, antispasmodic drugs. And then lastly, you know, if those are inadequate, then escalating to second line treatments. So thinking about tricyclics, um, particularly for, for pain treatment, um, and then also some of the drugs uh, that are targeted um, uh, specifically at stool form uh, and referral for psychological therapies where the patient's amenable or, and, and where we have access to those. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Professor Ford and Dr. Chris Black for their time in doing this podcast. Uh, please do read the whole papers and in fact all the papers that we mentioned uh, during this podcast will be found at the bottom uh, of this podcast link where you can just click in you can find all the great material uh, but the main one here is please read the uh, best management in irritable bowel syndrome thank you so much take care bye thank you thanks guys mm-hmm.